Recording from Starfish Mission in lovely San Francisco, California. We are catalyzing coherence, signal amidst an increasingly noisy world. I'm Matthew Perkowski. And I'm Brian Hofstein. We'll be your conceptual Sherpas as together we traverse the frontiers of human thought. And explore the deep patterns that connect us all. Hello and welcome back to Catalyzing Coherence. This is our second episode, our first in a series of deep dives into concepts that we feel establish the basic grammar for the rest of the series and interviews that we're going to be doing over the coming weeks. And this week we're going to really dig into the concept of coherence. It's our main thematic, it's a core concept, it's what everything else will be built upon, and today we want to go much more deeply into the concept so that our audience is on the same page with us, and we're all speaking the same language. Um, Brian's here with me again. Hello, friends. And we are going to start this by talking a little bit about the origins of the term coherence. And we'll start with the, the definition um, that we're using today, actually. And that definition, there's a couple definitions that are in wide usage of the term coherence. And the most popular one relates to the idea of being logical or being consistent or a logical consistency, an internal consistency. And that's what many people think of when they hear the word coherence. But that's actually not the main idea that we're working with. It's not necessarily the definition that resonates most with the ideas that we're espousing. The definition that actually is much more in line with the way that we're using the term coherence is this idea of the creation or the forming of a, of a unified whole or many different types of parts coming together into one larger entity that is not only more capable in its wholeness, but also retains the individuality of its pieces. So this is the type of definition that we're working with. Um, and we think that that actually, as a metaphor and as a way of seeing the world, can be applied to many different spaces within the artistic, scientific, spiritual, and philosophical domains. And, you know, that's why we're working with that notion. And, and we think it's actually, you know, we think it's very important for people to start thinking of the world this way. And we're going to go over a few of those, uh, a few of the reasons for that today. So uh, with respect to the word itself and its history, in terms of this particular definition, the word coherence actually is you know a downstream you know language is evolutionary and it changes over time but the word coherence um, its root was a latin root which was coherere and it actually meant to stick together or a a coherence or a sticking together of, of a group of parts and that seems really relevant to what we're talking about given that we live in an accelerating world and in an accelerating world in the process of acceleration, all the pieces of that world experience a pulling apart. Um, and we can all experience that pulling apart in different ways. It can feel like tension or stress or uncertainty, um, conflict, anger. All of these different types of emotions can be tied back to, in many ways, a world that is changing so rapidly that we're losing the ability to stick together. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why we think that this is such an interesting part of, of this definition of coherence, because it implies the ability to maintain our structure, even a diverse structure, but maintain the very basic necessity of, of sticking together as a coherent whole, as a species, as a community, um, amidst an increasingly chaotic and changing world. So that's, that's an interesting um, an interesting part of the, the origin story of this word cohere, uh, of coherence, uh, coherere. Um, any thoughts on that, Brian? I think a lot of what we're speaking to is a coherence of narrative, of story, um, of interdependence, interconnection. I think a lot about ecology in the sense of like economics and different ways in which um, coherence must be maintained, right? Like what are economic constructs of coherence, like the markets, the, the different federal banks, 
Um, these are these are constructs we've created to build coherence into these systems. And so to better understand how these constructs could actually mediate the world in more effective ways, we're studying coherence as a way to do that, to come to learn about it. Yeah, and that mediation, I think, is another way of, of talking about this idea of how we stick things together. So, you know, one could think of it in terms of, you know, in the actual structure that we're creating uh, or structures that we create in the world, um, think of a house or think of just using bricks or using um, stones to create a large structure. Uh, there's this idea of um, using mortar and mortar is the thing that, that sticks these bricks together. So the bricks are the individual pieces but to be able to create some sort of larger unifying structure, there needs to be some uh, some element or some part of this you know this system used for construction, whose job it is to bind everything together, whose job it is to make sure that the structure holds. And when we talk about things like monetary systems or language systems or banking systems or um, symbolic systems, in many ways. These are all different tools that exist in our shared objective space to allow us to synchronize our behavior, synchronize our actions, um, and you know, and stick together while also allowing for individual autonomy and freedom. Mm -hmm. So, so there's that element of this sticking together. There's another element of the history of this word, the etymology um, of of the word coherence, that's also pretty interesting to me. Um, there's a Old French translation or old, old French word um, hesitate. It's basically the root of the word hesitation, um, which also you know, came from Latin before it. But it shares the same root in Latin, the the co the the here, um, or herere. <laughs> Sorry, my Latin is very rusty. You'll have to forgive me. And this is this is the idea of hesitation. It's this this notion of there's an implication of speed or lack thereof. So to actually hesitate is, we could hesitate in different ways. We tend to, in our modern culture, think of the idea of, of hesitation as a negative, um, perhaps associated with indecision or a lack of understanding. And, and therefore someone is hesitating because they don't necessarily know what to do. But that isn't the full story. I think if you look at the, the history of this word, there's also, you know, if you look at this word and you look at its evolution and its connection to the idea of coherence and the fact that hesitation and coherence share the same origin story, so to speak, you can actually see that there's a relationship between speed and the ability of a system to stick together. And that's deeply embedded in the language that we use and the history of that language. And I think it's a very meaningful connection to understand that sometimes it's actually beneficial to slow down and to take a step back and to actually figure out what it is that keeps your system together or keeps your community together, or even perhaps keeps your own personal psychology holding together and to take that time to maintain your coherence. And that seems even um, even more prescient and necessary in a world where everything else in the environment is increasingly speeding up. So being able to intentionally hesitate with a conscious understanding of the fact that that hesitation is, is deeply related to maintaining this idea of coherence. Yeah, I think that's well put. So along those lines, um, we can move on to the notion of coherence in terms of how it relates to models of the world. And, you know, we've gone through the, the basic definition and then the history of the word a little bit. And then, you know, after the history, we can actually kind of start looking at how this incorporated itself, how this concept of coherence has been incorporated into the basic philosophy of truth itself. Uh, there's actually something called the coherence theory of truth. And it's a slightly counterintuitive way of looking at truth. It's not the most popular theory of truth, though it was characterized by some very prominent thinkers, uh, such as uh, Spinoza and, and Leibniz and Hegel, um, who all made varying claims that kind of touched on the notion that it's actually quite difficult to make a statement about what is true and what is not true 
irrespective of the rest of the system in which that statement resides. So there's this, there's this idea that a particular statement, let's say A equals B, um, one can't just take that statement at face value by itself outside of the rest of the context in which it exists and discuss whether it is true or not true. Uh, you actually have to try to understand what that implies for the integration of that statement into the rest of the theory of truth. Uh, and this is, this, this is quite different than other theories of truth or other ideas of truth, such as the correspondence theory, which is actually, uh, that's the theory that goes probably most deeply into the roots of Western history, which makes the claim basically that we create systems of symbols and try to map those on top of an objective reality and the process of discovering truth is no more than the process of laying increasingly fine-grained symbols um, and connections between those symbols using processes like the scientific method on top of an objective reality and uh, that any particular statement as long as it lays on top of reality in that way that has uh, some sort of symmetry is true and is correspondent with reality. And there are also other theories like the pragmatic theories of truth. And pragmatic theories of truth are slightly different than either the coherence or correspondence theories because the pragmatic theories of truth are, are more related to the idea that if you have a concept or if you have an idea that you express, um, perhaps let's say the concept of if I read, then I will be successful. Now that's actually something that's, that's testable uh, and it's actually a process. And so you have to actually act that process out in the world and start to see if, if it has an actual uh, symmetry with the behavior of the other people in the world or the other systems in the world around you. And if it does, if it actually works, if your behavior and your concept and other people's behavior all align, then that's good enough for the pragmatic theory of truth. It, it, you know, it works here, it works now within whatever systems that you are operating in. And so it's pragmatically true. But it's once again not necessarily concerned with how well an idea like if I read I will be successful fits into the system of all of the other truths that may or may not exist. So these are these different perspectives on truth and perspectives on how we establish truth and how we speak about truth in the world. And, you know, of them, coherence is, you know, though it has been probably the least discussed uh, formally in many ways, I think it holds the most potential in a world of increasingly integrated complexity where we have to be very cognizant of how everything we introduce into these systems, whether it's the social media landscape or whether it's our technological landscape or our economic reality or our interpersonal relationships, you know, it, it matters how new patterns actually incorporate into the rest of that system. And, and if they, even if they might be locally beneficial to you or to um, society in the here and now, uh, perhaps across the next week or month, it matters whether or not those ideas or those truths or those statements or those actions, it very much matters whether or not they allow the entire system to maintain its coherence. Because in a world that is increasingly interconnected, any type of decoherence can very easily spread. Uh, you can kind of think of that like a virus or a cold spreading much more rapidly in a densely packed environment. So in your office place or in a school environment, um, a virus is much more capable of hopping from person to person than it would be if 10 people were spread across an entire forest. And, and in that way, when our systems break down in an increasingly interconnected world, uh, it introduces these decoherence events that can, in theory, shake the entire structure of the foundation of, of things that we thought were quite stable. The banking crisis in 2008 was a very good example of that. So that's kind of how these, these perspectives on coherence integrate into very deeply meaningful uh, realities that, that impact our lives. And these are things that we need to start thinking about. And I think this is a term 
that we need to start really reintroducing into the conversations around our innovation, around our social systems, around our governance systems. Uh, it's not just enough to have things correspond in front of us today. We have to make sure that they are coherent over the long run. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I often think about music as metaphors and in a symphony, you have a conductor. You know, everyone has even the same sheets of music they're, they're reading from, um, but it still helps to have these points of vision that are cohering the whole ensemble. But we're making jazz as a lot, you know, bebop jazz is an even more far out example of this truly innovating at rapid speed, you know, that they're on each note vibing off of each other. So when we talk about acceleration, we talk about actually the music is becoming a little faster. Yeah, the tempo. The right? tempo. And, you know, if you, want to, if you want to kind of continue down that path, you know, this idea of coherence or a coherent truth, if we're talking about music, if we're talking about jazz, if we're talking about you know, every, every note that a jazz musician keeps adding to that flow of music, you know, it fits into the whole piece, right? The longer that this flows, the longer that you've created a composition or a coherent piece of music together, you know, you're creating it on the fly, but it, it does have a particular wholeness, right? Mm -hmm. It has a beginning, a middle, an end. It has a narrative structure. Um, there are very certainly particular notes or, or patterns that would, would break the story or would feel incoherent in the midst of that jazz piece. And, and that's hard enough to do even when the tempo is somewhat slow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you increase that tempo or as you turn up the tempo, you know, as you go from four, four time to increasingly, you know, when you're playing, you know, when every note is a 16th note and you have to think about it on the fly and generate it as opposed to memorize it or repeat it or use a past pattern to guide your music, creating new jazz on the fly in an increasingly rapid tempo becomes exponentially more difficult. And in many ways, that is the world that we live in with our, with our culture today, not mm -hmm. just musically, but with our political systems, with our, technology, you know, our technological innovation, um, with our cultural fragmentation. Um, and so you know, how do we keep playing that jazz together as a society, as a world, as a, uh, as a, as a species, really? Mm -hmm. as humanity mm -hmm. yeah i mean matthew you and i we both love a lot of different types of music we're, i don't think we're um we're not encouraging the tempo to speed up it's more just a natural observation of how we're starting to understand the nature of this movement within the cosmic symphony and there are people however they actually call themselves accelerationists mm -hmm. that they are talking about cybernetically speeding up the Hegelian dialectic through mimetic means. So that is part of, we have to start. Do you want to maybe unpack that a little bit? Speeding up the cybernetic acceleration of the Hegelian dialectic? Was, yeah. that, was that what you said? Maybe right. we can okay. loop it back. But yeah, generally speaking, um, they're, they're talking about, I mean, you know, the pendulum swinging from master to slave, bourgeoisie to proletariat, yin and yang, however it's sort of unfolding within form, um, they're acknowledging as we are sort of calling or sort of trying to un uncover the sense of what is happening right now. Where are we in this pendulum swinging? Is there something, is there even a pendulum that is swinging? What does that even mean? Um, but if so, how can we do this? How can we steer it? It is about, it's about stewardship. Like cybernetics is stewardship. How do we steward this, this, the shift that's taking place, right? And everyone has their, everyone comes from their place of they have their own agendas. You have the singularitarians who are pushing for this, whatever they're, you know, whatever they're calling for, whatever that means to people. Um, but then you also have people that are like, watching uh, Walking Dead and are thinking about, you know, zombie apocalypses. And there's all these different sort of eschatological stories that people are driven by and how they view the world and this time in, in, in history. Yeah. So in terms of that, that speeding up, that uh, accelerationism, so to mm -hmm. speak, I think that's, that's an interesting thread to pull out of, of that, um, you know, uh, of, of what you said there in terms of 
different people's perspective on whether or not this speeding up is a good thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I think about the idea of coherence and when I talk about the notion of its, if it's, it's linguistic roots in the same idea of hesitation, of being able to actually intentionally pause or intentionally slow down. You know, I also wonder if, you know, if this idea of accelerationism is in a way its own sort of unexamined religiosity, its own sort of, you know, instead of being willing to take a step back from the patterns in which we're embedded, mm. it just leans forward into them and, and kind of hopes for the best mm -hmm, and therefore mm -hmm. starts telling stories that, you know, like singularity, you know, stories like the singularity. If we accelerate to a fast enough point, we will transcend into a world of perfection. Yeah. Te technosis. Ultimately so to speak. cosmological propaganda. <laughs> it, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Cosmological propaganda. I like it. Yeah. It's something like that. Or it at least seems like it could be like that if it's not thoroughly enough considered. And I think that's that's part of what we're trying to do is force people to consider, you know, what are these other you know, how do those pieces fit into these other pieces these these other systems or structures of deeper wisdom that we've created throughout time and there's this temptation to say they just oh they no longer apply we live in a new world we have new technology we have new culture we you know in a world of the internet where i can talk to someone across the world from me at the speed of light why should i care what anybody wrote 2000 years ago on a you know on a scroll you know with a bone shard of a lamb that they were attending to and you know they were a little bit um, you know, incautious, and so it got eaten by a wolf, and they had to have a nice little lamb roast and turn their lamb's shin bone into a pen. Like, <laughs> does that does how does that relate to my life today? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> why is that why is that relevant? And um, I think what I would say, and this is this goes back to our idea of these types of cyclical patterns and this idea of coherence and the fact that humanity has been trying to articulate these ideas for a very long time and we may not have done it consciously for the majority of that time but we certainly you know looking back on it you can see that we've done it symbolically mm. um and you know within within our symbols perhaps collectively mm. in terms of an unconscious understanding or an unconscious acting out of these patterns you know i think we have a particular sense that continuing to double down on on patterns that are increasingly stressing out the community, whether that's your family or whether that is a city or whether that is, you know, the globally connected community or our species saying that if we just do more of what we're doing right now, more quickly and more efficiently and more effectively, that that will somehow meaningfully change the end game and not actually perhaps expedite a very negative end game. Something seems, to be cautious of. Seems, yeah, I mean, that, that perspective seems incautious at best yeah. and perhaps suicidal at worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These are delicate matters. Yeah, I mean, there's a delicacy, there's a fragility. Um, there's there, a volatility. Yeah, and these are, these are, also, these are also exciting times, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that volatility that you just mentioned, you know, perhaps now is a good time to bring in the idea of of chaos mm. as a an idea against which we might juxtapose the notion of, of coherence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. An ordering of chaos, potential chaos. Yeah, chaos as, as potential in mm -hmm. a way. Um, and the fact that, you know, when we talk about an idea like coherence, we're not talking, it's not a stasis, right? It, it goes back and forth between varying levels of, of stability, varying levels of certainty and uncertainty. But the thing that, you know, it, it doesn't break its connection with its past, for example. It doesn't, it doesn't break the umbilical cord. It doesn't um, move so quickly or change directions, directions so sharply that it, that it becomes disconnected and, and therefore loses its way back and, and cannot reorder itself or come back out of that chaos, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the difference between someone who, who perhaps has, you know, certain psychological issues, um, maybe like slight bouts of mania or slight bouts of depression or something like that and is able to, 
deal with those in whichever way. I mean, perhaps pharmacologically, perhaps psychologically, perhaps through meditation, perhaps and there are many, it's such a complex topic, but you can come back and, and reintegrate into a world that, you know, that actually still benefits from your presence and, and still can feed you value as opposed to the other routes, you know, and this is obviously sensitive territory, but you know, you can purely descend into chaos and then you end up entirely disconnected from the collective energy of society because that society is, is operating in some sort of rhythm or some sort of pattern mm -hmm. and it doesn't interface well with, with pure chaos, mm -hmm. but you still, you can flirt with chaos, right? And artists flirt with chaos and poets mm -hmm. flirt with chaos and scientists flirt with chaos and madness. It's like, you know, the line between genius and madness, right? It's mm -hmm. like, it's a fine line. And, and we, we have that recognition deeply encoded in our social psychological DNA. We recognize that someone's doing something that seems very strange or chaotic or weird. We're skeptical at first, but there's a part of us that, that is fascinated, right? That looks at them like, do they know something that I don't know, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that's the same attraction that we have to looking into the face of chaos mm -hmm. and pulling from that face of chaos some sort of new coherence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nietzsche spoke about this all the time. He talked about Apollo and Dionysus, this balancing of gods. Apollo, the god of order, Dionysus, the god of wine, of revelry. And the birth of tragedy is the beginning of this dance, you know, between love and strife, chaos and order. And finding that harmony, you know, it's a necessary harmony because without chaos, order is nothing. There's no action in order. I mean, order is an essential component to the full dance. But it's like yin requires yang. You, you need these tensions. So coherence implies, it implies a potential. As we're, we're, I, I like us thinking about chaos as potential. It's an interesting way to view it. Yeah. And thinking of coherence as a orchestrator of potential. Mm -hmm. I think we've been using the terminology in our conversations and some of our other interviews, the idea of a, uh, of a generative tension, mm -hmm. right? Of a of a tension within a system. So we have these, like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, we have these systems that we use to maintain our coherence with one another, whether they're language or linguistic systems or symbolic systems of art, or if they are tokenized systems that we use to exchange value, you know, such as money, monetary systems. Some of the most interesting, you know, some of the most interesting innovations in any of those spaces happen when you introduce a, a small amount of chaos that creates a tension within the system. And that tension, you start stretching the system to its limits, whether it's using money in a new way. Perhaps this is gray or black markets, or perhaps this is developing new forms of money as if, you know, we, we are currently in the throes of, um, you know, a monetary revolution, or at least perhaps the seeds of a monetary revolution. Or if you're talking about language, you talk about someone like Shakespeare, who quite literally uh, started inventing new language on the fly. And what would it have been like to be in the audience of a Shakespearean play in an era where there had been, you know, a, a lull, so to speak, in the innovation or in the innovation landscape of language for, you know, your entire lifetime at least, and perhaps your parents' lifetime and their parents' lifetime. And then along comes this Shakespeare guy and just starts dropping entirely new words in the context of these brilliant plays. And, you know, there's some sort of tension that that creates in your mind when the word hits your brain and it creates a, a dissonance, a tension, but it's generative because it creates a certain amount of chaotic disruption, but not so far past the limits that it does more destruction than it creates potential for creation or, mm -hmm. or, or establishes potential for creation. And so, you know, in all these different artistic and scientific and cultural domains, you know, coherence is intimately related with this notion of, of dancing on the edge of chaos mm -hmm. in a way that people seem to find beautiful. And perhaps that is intimately related to the idea of beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I think it probably is. I think of dancers just on the edge of what's possible or... You know, flirting with those edges, those nuances, is, is definitely something that makes art so beautiful. 
I remember, what was it, Fellini's Eight and a Half is a very interesting portrait of his subconscious mm. in film. And it was just these little things that he just drop into scenes that tied other things together, like literally without it, very implicitly, very um, almost like it's, it could seem out, it could seem disorderly. Like, where did that come from? But there's actually an underlying thread that connects them just, just so. Hmm. That is interesting as well. The idea of pieces of information in your environment or symbols in your environment that might seem out of place but that actually act as a connecting thread to, to the greater context in which you exist. So it kind of brings up this idea of, as an individual, we might not always be that well positioned to understand what aspects of our day-to-day -day lives or, or the people we interact with or the ideas we interact with on a daily life. We, we only see one very small facet of, of a person when we're meeting with them, right? In the here and now, you only have, let's say that somebody, you have a conversation with a coworker, the surface area of that coworker that you interact with that day, who knows exactly what's going on much more deeply in their, in their life, in their psychology, with their parents, with their children, even on the ride to work. Like it, it's very difficult to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with people in our environment or when we're dealing with other ideas in our environment and this is very relevant to the idea of politics when somebody says a word that's a politically charged word it will automatically activate and trigger a jumping to conclusions a you know there's a foregone conclusion that we think we know who's in front of us just because they said a particular word right let's say that you know somebody said um, in the political context you know we're talking to somebody and they say the phrase death tax um, and that comes with a very specific political orientation. Uh, and, and therefore, we jump to this conclusion that they must fit, fit into a, a cookie-cutter image that we have of that type of person in our head. Yet, we don't really allow room for the possibility that there might be an underlying framework to connect into there. There might be some other deeper, more coherent framework into which we could use that symbol as a door rather than reacting to that symbol as a sign of an enemy or yeah. a sign of chaos. Yeah. We could use it as a, instead a sign of potential, a sign of, mm. of coherence, of, of potential coherence, right? Yeah. Like, you know, how, how can we find ways of, even if our symbols, even if our representations, even if our words try to drive us in different directions or drive us apart from one another, even if we've created these weird structures for all sorts of reasons, like in the political domain, it's interesting because there are motivations for doing so. I mean, there's been studies that have actually traced the history of political language between the Republican and the Democratic Party and shown that over the past 30 years, the Republican and Democratic parties have started using completely different language to discuss the same topics. And 30 years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. They might disagree about an issue, but they would at least use the same words to talk about it which raises an interesting question. If we're literally creating new languages that isolate us in our political parties, how are we ever supposed to maintain coherence mm. in this accelerating world unless we find ways back out of that? Unless we find, unless we find a way to, to start reincorporating, reintegrating with one another. Um, and yet we have all these parts of our society that may benefit in the short term or the medium term from that polarization. Mm. So if I'm a politician... It's quite easy for me to start creating a language that if I put out there, if I say to a crowd, half the crowd cheers and half the crowd doesn't, I know who are my supporters, right? Mm -hmm. I know who I should focus my energy in terms of campaigning, in terms of trying to find donations, in terms of who I should then start you know, attacking, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very efficient tool for sorting people out, mm -hmm. but it's not a very good tool for actually sticking together mm -hmm. over the long term. And I, I think we're... We're feeling that now in our political world, in our political reality. We're feeling a, a chaotic undertone. We're feeling like we're teetering on the edge of, of too much chaos that might not actually be able to be recohered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the notion of misaligned incentives is interesting and definitely a key aspect to why the polarization is so extreme right now because we are existing in a system in which there's inherent misaligned incentives. There's this principal agent problem they talk about in finance. When a bank and the person it's serving, if 
the bank can still profit even if the person it's serving does not do well. Mm -hmm. this, this, these are incentives that are not aligned. Yeah. Um, aligned incentives are uh, an ensemble making music together where they all benefit by everyone in that ensemble playing to the best of their ability. Where like the product of everyone playing the music is actually something you'd want to listen to for a while. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting in, in the bank case. It's like if if people or if institutions in society have misaligned incentives, perhaps they were able to establish that, that relationship at one point in history. And, and perhaps it was within the rules of, of music such that people found it at least moderately enjoyable to listen to. Maybe, mm -hmm. right? But the question is like, does that last forever? And does it become, you know, how incoherent does that sound or those incentive misalignments, how incoherent do they have to be become, before we actually start creating new systems that, mm -hmm. you know, that actually start uh, opening territory for alignment of incentives, which is, I think, what we're doing. You know, we're seeing the beginnings of that in the cryptocurrency world. We're seeing the beginnings of that. <laughs> well, the political world was claiming to address it. Multiple politicians will speak lip service to the idea of, regulating the financial institutions or creating a better framework for cooperation or, or better alignment between customers and, and these larger banks. But it may very well be this moment where we just need entirely new, more, co more coherent systems. Mm -hmm. What else do we have on the, uh, the agenda of, of threads we want to weave into this notion of coherence? So <clears throat> we, have, we have quite a few threads here uh, and perhaps we should... We've talked a lot about culture. We've talked a lot about music. We've talked a little bit about philosophy and truth and coherence. Perhaps we could touch a little bit on the actual physical domain, the scientific domain. Mm. Uh, there are some interesting metaphors there in terms of coherence as well that I think apply. You know, they're very appropriate. So coherence is used in the scientific domain, well, at least in one, one location, in, in terms of lasers in terms of the way that light behaves and interacts with other light which is kind of interesting to think of from the perspective of light rippling outwards from a light source in in wave patterns and there are many different sources of light in a, in a given environment and when all those wave patterns start interacting with one another they start creating kind of chaotic amplification effects with one they inter, there's interference Right? The, mm -hmm. the light waves interfere with one another. And you know, if you're just sitting in a room, you'd obviously never notice this. Uh, it's, it's perfectly fine to have incoherent light when you don't have any specific purpose that you're trying to achieve with the light other than illuminating a room. But if you wanted to turn that light into something like a laser that really concentrates the power inherent in those light sources into a specific goal or a specific task in the same way that society might have a specific goal or a specific task. And we have to, instead of cohering light sources, we have to cohere individual perspectives, individual, um, you know, individuals, economic incentives. Um, if we want to actually target particular goals as a society, we have to find ways of, of cohering those, those interference patterns between us, so to speak. And so like you could imagine that a Republican and a Democrat speaking in 2018 using these symbols these political politically charged language pieces of language that they project at one another those create a lot of interference patterns mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot of noise right yeah. in the same way that all these light waves bouncing off each other uh, all these light waves interfering with one another create uh, an incoherent atmosphere that isn't very conducive to using that light in a in a more directed fashion right mm -hmm. so our political system loses coherence and we stop being able to do things like keep our roads paved mm -hmm. or keep our bridges standing or keep our children educated mm -hmm. or keep, you know, a medical system afloat, whether it's a market-based medical system or a single payer medical system. We can't seem to keep, you know, well, we, we certainly, we certainly seem to have an increasing number of problems on, on all of these fronts. Right. And the claim would be something like, if we lack mechanisms for cohering our actual thought and communicated language in the same way that scattered light lacks a mechanism for coherence, we will also lose the ability to direct that energy at any long-term goals or targets as a community in the same way that without a, a, a mechanism by which to cohere the light, you can't actually concentrate it into a laser. 
Um, and a laser is capable of many things that any average light bulb is certainly not capable of, right? Perhaps they're good for different purposes, but I think that's kind of how I see this idea of the, the scientific notion of, of coherence or you know, coherence in, in the, the domain of light actually playing into this. And, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps we can at some point go deeper into that analogy, but I don't want to go too deeply into it right now because it, it can get a little nerdy. <laughs> um, I don't want to bore people, but I think there are some very interesting parallels between the way that information propagates throughout mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the way that light propagates throughout systems. Mm -hmm. You can start introducing metaphors like people as mirrors for information, mm. reflecting information back at one another with different types of adjustments to that information, mm. which would be like a differently shaped mirror, whether you, know, you go into a fun house, right? And the reason why a fun house looks so weird, a fun house of mirrors, right? I like got a carnival. You go into the fun house and well, why does it look so strange? Like when you look at your reflection everywhere, why is it all concentrated or distorted or bent well it's because the mirrors have different shapes and they scatter the light in different ways and in that same manner people have different shapes so to speak inside their brains and they take information in and they reflect it back at other people with certain elements of concentration or distortion or addition or subtraction i mean anybody who's played the telephone game with other kids um, or even adults knows knows how easily this type of information can get changed over time. The telephone game. You've never played the telephone game. What is the telephone? Oh game? my god, the telephone game. So you have, let's say, you have ten kids sitting in a circle, and the one one child starts off, and that child is supposed to create a message. So I would say something like, "Brian has an amazing hat." <laughs> And it's their job to tell to the, the child to their left. And they continue that all around the chain. And then by the time it gets to, and they, do, they don't say it out loud. They just whisper it into the ear of the child next to them. Like whisper down the lane. Oh, you call it whisper down the lane. Yeah. See, there we go. Different words, different labels ah, for the same, same process. Uh -huh. Right? Yeah. Right? And we're, we're cohering the terminology yeah. right now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we're coming to a point of uh, historical coherence yeah. uh, in our own personal lives. Yeah. And now we actually have uh, increased shared grammar with yeah. one another. I know a little bit more about the world. You know a little bit more about the world. Mm -hmm. But we were talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. For the audience, if they don't know what we were talking about in either Whisper Down the Lane yeah, yeah. or The Telephone the Game, telephone game <laughs> what happens or what tends to happen when the last child you know, basically says the message to the rest of the class or the rest of the group is quite frequently it's a completely different message oh, yeah. than what, what you know what you often started hysterically with. so often quite hysterically and comedically so so <laughs> instead of uh you know brian has an amazing hat it would be something like for lunch i ate a rat <laughs> <laughs> right some, something like that there's Far like off the beat yeah, yeah you can see like the, the, there's there's a connection there like yeah. maybe it's like an in, intonation or some sort of symmetry between the length of the words mm. or the sound of the mm. words so there's there's some connection there but the meaning has become so distorted mm -hmm. that it is incoherent. Right? Yeah. You could not, you could not, for example, plan a birthday party using that game very effectively. Mm -hmm. I actually read an interesting article about particular types of communication systems and and how that type of distortion leads to the ability to easily teach things. They were actually using origami as an example. And so there was this process of folding origami and teaching someone these very precise steps. And so you can teach someone the precise steps of folding and they either work or they don't work. Um, and so therefore the fidelity of, you know, 10 people down the line, the 10th person to be taught is, is still folding the origami in a, in a manner that's quite similar to 10 generations prior. And so you actually have these very high fidelity mechanisms. And that might be a good place to talk a little bit about the fact that coherence doesn't actually mean perfect order. Mm. It doesn't mean inflexible order in the, same, in the sense that like origami moving 10 steps down the generational line being passed down and being exactly the same implies a certain inflexibility, mm -hmm. implies a certain rigidity in the face of environment, you know, potential environmental change or yeah. perhaps even a lack of creativity. Maybe not. Maybe it's just very well adapted. Maybe it's just a beautiful piece of origami. 
that being said, this it's I, not deterministic. Yeah, right? that there's this openness to what could become. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the idea of like, perhaps if you get too obsessed with replicating something as it was, mm-hmm. um, you don't leave. That's a cancer cell. Yeah, it can, it can certainly, you know, well, cancer would be something that's just like infinitely reproduces without, without respect to any previous pattern. Yeah, exactly. But there's this idea of, um, there's actually been some scientific research done with respect to the beating of the human heart. Mm, yeah. Um, and the fact that people tend to think that the human heart is a very regular beat, but in fact, the human heart has mm-hmm. a high level regularity in terms that, you know, you can have, a, you have a heartbeat, but if you really look at the, the beating of the heart, it's, it's quite irregular and semi chaotic. It's right on that, that interesting border between order and chaos. And that disorder to heartbeats is actually a sign of, of good health. And we're actually starting to figure out that we can use the mathematics of chaos um, to see if someone's heartbeat is actually too regular. Mm-hmm. If they don't have enough irregularity in their heartbeat, it's actually a sign of an, an unhealthy heart and a potential predictor of, of something like an ischemic attack or a heart attack, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's actually kind of interesting as well that this this symbol of human life, this heartbeat, this base pulse of our of our life force that we generally perceive as something that is so ordered at a smaller scale when you zoom in actually depends on its existence on that border between you know, chaos and order uh, in a coherent state with that generative tension. So where do we pick up the thread then for the context of coherence in the here and now? Coherence in the here and now. You know, Brian Eno's penned that uh, opening essay for the long, the long now, the big here and the long now. Mm-hmm. And to try to cohere us in that context, what that means. The big here, this sort of space, yeah. physical reality, but also the long now, the temporal element. And it is an, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like, I think, a beautiful guiding principle to tracking down coherence and how it manifests itself in different sort of layers of complexity. This is like Stuart Brand's pace layering. Mm-hmm. You know, where he shows this undulation of chaos moving through different systems. Mm-hmm. But provided this framework, you see there is some coherence to it. And it's definitely chaotic. Like, it's not like we're in, no one's in control. There's no boss of nature. Nature's mm-hmm. just doing itself. But there is maybe an anticipation that allows us to better plan for future coherence mechanisms or or spaces in which it's most necessary to have some sort of guiding principles, some orchestration. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, especially with respect to the idea of pace layering that you mentioned, uh, for those in the audience that aren't familiar with this idea of pace layering in the context of Stuart Brand's uh, writing and his work, you can kind of think of it as different layers of nature have different rates of operation or different heartbeats, different, different temporal frame rates. So you could think of it, you know, in terms of the, if you look at the geological timescale, that that's operating at the timescale of billions of years, right? In terms of the changes that are happening in our tectonic plates uh, that underlie, quite literally underlie all of life on earth. And then you can talk about timescales of things like erosion uh, on the surface of the earth and the creation of rivers and canyons that happens over these timescales of also billions of years, but also you can, you can see noticeable change on the timescale of millions of years. And then you start getting up into you know, life and trees and forests and these large-scale patterns of collective intelligence. And then you actually see that these, these layers on top of that as you move up this chain, you actually move towards smaller and smaller scale life forms, greater complexity, greater information flow. And when you do that, the, the frame rate increases, right? And so when that frame rate increases or when that speed increases closer to the surface, then you have this kind of, you know, these different flow rates at every layer. Um, and so you have nature and then you have culture above that and then you have governance above that. Um, and then we have other layers above that as well. Infrastructure, commerce, and then fashion and art. 
Yeah, sort of like so the newest sphere on top. Yeah, so you can build all the way up from these deeply structural elements of the earth all the way up to the most rapidly changing elements of human culture, such as our our fashion cycles that might be two to three months, mm-hmm. depending on what we're talking about. And and that idea implies that the more our existence depends upon an understanding and a cooperation with different deeper layers of this structure the more we have to understand how the different rates of change at each of these layers connect with each other. And so you can very easily imagine how it wasn't very important for us as a small uh, nomadic tribe-based species to really be that deeply in touch with the climate or climatological transformation or things or geological understanding of where a supervolcano might be. But now that we are literally a global species wrapped around this entire planet as a sort of human biofilm that is not only just a a biofilm, but is also dramatically contributing to all the processes on this planet, whether it's by drilling deeply into the earth and changing the composition under under the soil or changing the composition of the soil itself for agriculture or quite literally moving mountains or changing the composition of the, you know, the air we breathe or the climate in which we live, uh, we have to have a better, more coherent understanding of how these systems are connected with one another and what type of actions, going back to this coherence theory of truth, what type of actions hold the potential to, to break the entire system or to potentially introduce chaos across all of those layers? And so I think that's deeply related to this idea of, of coherence in the here and now in terms of figuring out ways to start drawing connections and creating systems that demonstrate how these, how these domains are related to one another, how science and climate science and geology relate to art, relate to culture, relate to politics in a way that allows for people to not necessarily attach themselves so vociferously to the symbols that divide us, but that look past that or have the, that have the capacity to look past that to something that can help create a more coherent, coherent framework mm-hmm. of communication and of interaction across larger timescales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a book that I love, Art and Energy, How Culture Changes by Barry Lord, um, who creates museums. So that's an interesting way of thinking about coherence in ex- museum exhibits. Um, but it is also was involved at Harvard's Divinity School and thinks a lot about sort of perennial narratives. And he looks at how energy and art are are like very um, emblematic of each other, that he shows that the history of our use of energy actually corresponds with the art that we're making at that time. And so as we move into the 21st century, we start thinking about more sustainable sources of energy. He suggests as well that the art will be changing and reflecting that. And he talks about earth art and body movement, physical art. You could imagine theater becoming more of a art that people appreciate. That as we as we come to appreciate our earthliness, our our relationship, our, a more harmonious, energetic relationship between self and environment, these new forms of art will absolutely be catalyzing this coherence for this new paradigm of, of energetic harmony. Yeah, I think the, the, the world of art and the world of spirituality are, are oftentimes the most fertile soil within humanity for the creation of powerful symbols. And, and these symbols are the things that we use kind of in the same way that the funhouse mirrors work or ourselves as information mirrors work. We use symbols as tools to reflect meaning. Right. So, you know, you actually just Brian, for the audience listening, Brian just actually got some of his first tattoos. And, you know, you can speak more about those, perhaps, in terms of how it relates to this concept. But in each of those is a symbol or or multiple symbols interacting with one another. You know, so there's the yin and yang with koi fish or you have, uh, you know, the eye of Horus uh, with a, a king cobra around that. And, you know, you can speak more to the exact meaning of those. But the the fundamental point is that these artistic symbols actually reflect ideas back at you whenever you look at them. And so you can think of it as, you know, the symbols are kind of bringing you back to a particular type of 
baseline of meaning mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. yourself. And in that same way, art and spirituality generate these symbols that put the human mind into a particular space that might not be as easily accessible through purely rational or logical means, Mm -hmm. but that might also help us communicate the types of relationships between parts of our reality that are, are still quite difficult to communicate in language or words or, or to speak to one another about explicitly without triggering these types of more polarized modes of thought or more reactionary modes of thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The invention of language began on stone tablets keeping track of trade. It was yeah, cuneiform. It was a, uh, effectively uh, the world's first accounting systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is where language derived from it in its entirety. Mm-hmm. To intermediate meaning between parties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, this idea of to intermediate, intermediate that meeting, um, for anyone interested in a, a deeper dive on this, I have an essay that I actually wrote called crypto beyond capitalism mm. and i think in a the, series a, a book s- perhaps <laughs> yeah and i think in insofar as they're published on medium at the moment i think it is the second essay in which i establish uh, the idea of an evolutionary coherence or or using symbols or systems of symbols to help a group maintain um, simultaneously an increased capacity for group interaction and coordination, as well as allowing for individual autonomy and freedom. And uh, in the third essay, I talk a lot about how that got scaled up via the tool of uh, the token of money, but also the creation of writing and the creation of writing as an externalized accounting, basically an externalized accounting set of symbols that allowed for society to keep scaling these tools that we'd created in a way that actually worked within large hierarchies. And there's some parallels between that as well as um, the way that we had to actually start taking our polytheistic cultures that were quite incongruous with one another when we started living in very large centralized communities and actually abstracting those into much more homogenous monotheistic perspectives on the world. And In many ways, these were tools to allow for the continuation of coherent growth while we were creating a much more hierarchical and densely populated civilization. That being said, we've, I think, extended that pattern of centralization and large hierarchy building all the way up to its limits, if not perhaps past its limits, which is why we seem to be in this age of of decentralization, or at least the beginning of an age of decentralization. And if we're going to decentralize, we need to create much more effective tools for providing the same services that these previously centralized coherence mechanisms played, but in a way that allows for different cultures, for different individuals, for different perspectives to to explore their own meaning in the world uh, without creating a lot of friction and heat. Uh, in the form of, unfortunately, uh, conflict and violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely needed. There's definitely a lot of chaos that's continuing to grow and grow in terms of the increased complexity. Stephen Hawking said the 21st century would be the century of complexity. And so within this greater sort of mosaic of complexity, of density, of fractal information and packets of systems that we're all sort of increasingly interwoven within like Indra's web. Mm -hmm. We need that thread that connects everything. The synapses that tie all the neurons together. Yeah. And it's sometimes difficult to figure out where that thread will come from. And I think in our increasingly technological world, we always think or we tend to think that it will come from the domain of technology or from the economic realm you know, the entrepreneurial realm. And while many solutions or parts of the solution may come from that domain, I think it's also imperative that we not forget the deeper knowledge that we've carried with us for the past, you know, perhaps all the way back to 10,000 years or more, depending on how we interpret human, kind of the evolution of human storytelling and and the evolution of human symbols and, and religious understanding or religious communication or art. 
we shouldn't just disconnect from that and we shouldn't necessarily dismiss that as an equally powerful tool to bridge these gaps. In fact, in some ways, it might be the only tools we have left mm -hmm. uh, that, that can still perhaps transcend many of the boundaries we've erected through these much more rationalized, nation-centric uh, technological systems that, while they are extremely efficient, also tend to create as many barriers to connection as they create opportunities for connection. Mm -hmm. So we still need these transcendent ideas. And mm -hmm. so along those lines, there's a, uh, there's a passage from the Tao Te Ching that I would like to, to kind of bring in and maybe we can wrap up on this and wrap up on the, the spiritual dimension of this idea of coherence. Eastern philosophies. Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up on, on the Eastern note tonight. So, so let's go through this. So the, here, I'm going to read the quote and then we'll unpack a little bit and we'll talk about it a little bit. And that's maybe how we'll wrap up this, this episode on coherence. So the Tao is like the emptiness of a vessel. And in our employment of it, we must be on our guard against all fullness. How deep and unfathomable it is, as if it were the honored ancestor of all things. We should blunt our sharp points and unravel the complications of things. We should attemper our brightness and bring ourselves into agreement with the obscurity of others. How pure and still the Tao is, as if it would ever so continue. I do not know whose son it is. It might appear to have been before God. Now, this particular translation is a little bit more verbose, a little bit less poetic. Um, and we'll go into why that is. But I'm going to read a second version of this that is the same the same underlying information, just translated differently by a different translator and translated with the intention of, instead of trying to convey the ambiguity of the pictographic language of Chinese, traditional Chinese pictographic characters, not simplified, which carries a little bit less information. Um, instead of optimizing for that, the second translation is optimizing for the poetic resonance with the initial flow of, of the poem itself. But it's trying to say actually the same thing. So the Tao is empty yet inexhaustible, like an abyss. It seems to be the origin of all things. It dulls the sharpness, unties the knots, dims the light, becomes one with the dust, deeply hidden as if it only might exist. I do not know whose child it is, it seems to precede the ancestor of all. So these are two different translations of, of the same fundamental passage, which is passage four from, from the Tao Te Ching. And one of the interesting things about that, I'm going to go from the first translation, is this idea of we should blunt our sharp points and unravel the complications of things. We should attemper our brightness and bring ourselves into agreement with the obscurity of others. Mm. Which is a really, I mean, you know, they're kind of getting, that's very closely associated with this idea, idea of coherence. We all have our own sharp edges. We all have our own abrasive points. We all have our own incongruities. But we need to, you know, to be able to bring ourselves into agreement to cohere. To, to attemper our brightness. We have to attemper our own brightness or mm -hmm. what we perceive as our own brightness. And mm -hmm. we all want to shine, We, you know. The Christian version, what's that song? It's like this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, right? And uh, I remember them forcing that one on us in, in Sunday school. But uh, <laughs> I never thought I'd actually talk about that seriously again. It's a slightly different idea, right? As opposed to the individualistic light and all of its, in all of its variants and all of its individual nuances, perhaps there is some amount of value in terms of figuring out where we can connect with others, where we can actually perhaps blunt our own uh, spears, our own sharp points, our own brightness. And by doing so, perhaps create a more coherent system, a more coherent whole uh, to actually become more coherent, not only with ourselves, but with, with the whole of the society or with the whole of the species. And, you know, I say this not because, you know, this is the final word, but it's just quite interesting to me that that these ideas go this deeply and that we've been talking about them as a species for this long. Mm -hmm. And these problems are nothing new. 
And this notion of, of needing to maintain coherence and needing to perhaps pause or hesitate and needing to reconsider what parts of ourselves or our systems or our structures might be too rough or too sharp or too bright to be able to fall into a coherent pattern with the rest of our society or community or family or our own psychology. Uh, what might need to go? What might need to be atempered? These... What what might not there be yet that will be? You can think of new forms of art that emerge. Yeah, to perhaps even fill that gap or to have right. connect the sharp points in yes. a way that makes them no longer too sharp to connect. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, this is a universal thematic. And this is, I think, a kind of, this is an elegant way for us to end this idea of exploring coherence. And... Perhaps we've achieved our goal of establishing more of a, of a grammar around the term coherence. I'm sure it will continue to underlie the thematics of all the rest of our interviews and all the rest of our episodes. But we tried to do our best here, and I think it was coherent. I hope it was coherent. And I hope we conveyed the idea of coherence through this attempt to bring different threads of science, culture, religion, and art, and music together into a picture of the symbol of coherence. Mm. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. Cheers.